Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. We're here tonight to talk about episodes one and two of Steve McQueen's anthology series on Amazon Prime, Small Axe. My name is John Lyons. I'm a filmmaker, teaching artist, and the director of programming for the Film Society. I'm Erica Berlin, the executive director of the Film Society of Northwestern PA. I'm Mike Berlin, the little hatchet on your production set. (laughs) And we're here with Delisa. Delisa, Delisa. (laughs) Delisa, she's our fourth. She's our fourth for this evening. You're an honorary staff member of the Film Society tonight, Delisa. Welcome. You just got a promotion. (laughs) That's right. We're happy to be here tonight to talk about Small X. And, um, you know, I, we were just talking before we, we got started about how the stories of Small X, and of course we just watched the first two, or that's, we're only talking about the first two, but we, we started talking about Mangrove, which is the first. Um, it's the two hour um, first episode. It's not just American stories of racial injustice, right? I mean, those are the ones that we get so familiar with um, because they're on the news like every day. The modern stories of racial injustice, we hear them every single day, but it's amazing the stories that happen all around the world and they've been happening for decades. And, you know, Mike and I were just talking earlier when we were watching this, it's not just decades, it's centuries, yeah. right? It is centuries of racial injustice and, and what has gone on um, since, since the beginning of time and not just racial injustice, but of how um, countries and entire races have wiped out uh, races of people. Um, and so, you know, watching watching the the tale of Mangrove, right? Um, Mangrove is the first story, and just a little tiny snippet. Okay, so of of what happens in Mangrove. And I mean, John, do you want to fill us in? Like, what is the basic tiny tiny sure. synopsis of Mangrove? Well, let's let's right? even back up a little more and talk a about a little bit more okay. about this this impressive filmmaker um, yes. who. Yes. Yes who led this project. Uh, so Steve McQueen, he's actually a trained fine artist. Um, he made 20 short films before he made his, his first feature. Uh, very impressive. Wow. <laughs> Small Axe was an 11 year long project and he started making it after his first feature film, Hunger. And um, so he's an artist that works in many mediums. He's extremely talented. His films um, After Hunger were Shame, 12 Years a Slave, at Widows, which actually, fun trivia fact, our very first episode of the Film Grain podcast, we talked about Widows, um, which is pretty cool. So I, I love all of his films. They... Uh, oftentimes are gut-wrenching like i would say in the case of like hunger 12 years a slave even shame to an extent like very hard difficult viewing experiences but magnificent um in in his craft and storytelling and i i think right now from a director standpoint particularly and sort of going back through the, the filmography and I haven't seen all of the episodes of Small Axe. I mean, let's be honest, they're all films, really. Yeah. Uh, McQueen is really sort of a starting to establish himself as like kind of the penultimate auteur director, maybe of our time. Like it's, he is such a distinct, unique voice with something real to say in every single one of his films. I don't know if you can, I don't know if you always get to say that with even the most celebrated uh, directors. It's fascinating and awe-inspiring what he is now accomplishing at this point. And he's pretty prolific. And I, and when I say this, like, John, I don't know how you feel, but like, I'm tossing him out there with like all the, all the greats, like the Kozlowski's and the, uh, you know, it's just like the uh, Herzog's, like that's, that's what I think he is doing right now from an artistic standpoint. He yeah, is, I mean, he is an artist. <laughs> he is an artist. We are talking about an artist with a very keen eye on 
what uh, historical and social issues. Just, he's incredible, super impressive. Erica or Delisa, do you want to jump in with any uh, Steve McQueen comments just in general, his filmography in general, and then we'll jump into Mangrove. Well, with Steve McQueen, what I noticed with him, because um, I, I watched 12 Years a Slave, so I was familiar with that, you know, with the name, and then I seen so many trailers of Small Acts, you know, but it was just like knowing 12 Years a Slave is like, do I want to watch this? What is this going to be about? <laughs> But what I love about him is the fact that he can take like a moment and you see people's facial expressions and you just know what you're, you're supposed to feel in that moment by watching their facial expressions. You know, it's like he could take this whole second or minute and pour all this emotion into just a second because you're just watching that person and you see their facial expressions just change. And he takes the time to show us that. You know, it's just not going through the story, but it's like showing us every little bit. There's a shot in Mangrove when they, after one of the, the raids on the restaurant, and he lets the camera just sit on a uh, on a tipping colander. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and the, to allow those moments to breathe. Yeah, I'll just jump in and say in Hunger and in um, 12 Years a Slave, I'm thinking of scenes that will never uh, leave leave my memory that he lingers on a shot for an uncomfortable amount of time and makes you feel that moment. Lisa, I totally agree with you. And John, maybe this is the same scene you're thinking of from 12 Years a Slave. And forgive me, I can't remember the name of the main character, John, maybe you can. It's the scene where for the first moment, the title character is singing a spiritual for the first time. And he is with his fellow slaves. And and he just is, you can see where the spiritual truly comes from, like, because it's coming just deep from the soul of pain and anguish and it's right on his face you don't see the rest of his body but you see the the pain just coming out of him and that's where it's coming from so i just flash forwarded you know 200 years to a church and films where I've seen, you know, a church full of African-American men and women singing spirituals. And that is, I don't know, flash forwarding, like the same man actually as a slave on a farm, it coming from his soul and seeing that in the future. Do do you know what I mean? Like I could see Mm -hmm. on his face what you see now, that same emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, something I will never truly feel, but I could see it, you know, 200 years apart, but it was right on, on his face. Can you, can you think of the moment I'm thinking oh, yeah. of Delisa it's, from that? It's yeah. Solomon. Northup. Sorry. <laughs> Jumping in. Solomon was the lead character's name. Solomon. Thank you. Thank you. So Steve McQueen said with the small axe project that Mangrove was always the starting point for this project. He considered expanding a series, I think in, if I recall, in this community specifically and building with from this story, Um, but then decided there's so many stories in this community that he wanted to tell. And it was so, so rich with important stories that then it it built from there. Um, He also always wanted these stories to play on TV because he wanted it to be playing in people's living rooms. He wanted the most people possible um, to see these stories. So he always conceived it as a a TV series. He also, interestingly, I saw in one interview, considers this like a Western. Um, he says, basically, it's a guy opens a, a saloon and the sheriff tries to close him down um, and the cafe kind of turns into the line that's being held, um, you know, by the people, by the restaurant owner. I thought that was kind of interesting. So the story is essentially we have Frank. Um, he's in a, a very tight knit community. 
he he wants to create a space for um, you know people in his community to to socialize to have a good time you know he 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 gets excited about entertaining people he naturally um, attracts people in the community um, you know as a safe space to discuss you know the politics of the moment and the problems that they have with law enforcement so you know it becomes a place for um, black Londoners to hang out and have community and comfort, but they are constantly harassed <laughs> and abused by the police. Um, and so the, the, um, the mangrove restaurant in Notting Hill that Frank owns becomes, you know, kind of this center um, of gravity for the community and also the, the place where all of these conflicts erupt and keep growing and growing and growing. I think that's all I will say for an intro. Um, I think, you know, that the film is excellent. I ranked it as a film in my like top three, uh, I would say probably for, for the year 2020. I, I love it. And um, yeah, what do you all think? Well, it's interesting. I didn't know about the Western thing. Uh, and I, now that you mention it, I definitely uh, get hints of Shane or the man who shot Liberty Valance or even kind of Once Upon a Time in the West. And so you can see those correlations uh, or those callbacks to other Westerns. So that, and McQueen's, again, he's, you're talking about a really smart director. You're somebody who's working on that cerebral level. Uh, it, it's, this is just excellent excellent filmmaking at the very top uh there's it's it's really a film that everybody should see and i i think there's there's also a commentary within the commentary because if you know anything about notting hill now it's become this very gentrified very uh posh neighborhood and uh and i of course i think you know we all associate it with the uh, julia roberts hugh grant film but it's just like there's there's history behind this stuff uh, not too much not too different from anything that's happened from like the lower east side or williamsburg in um in new york city well i have a few thoughts so i think it's definitely ironic right that the british colonized right so the british went to the west indies and colonized and then left and then the afro-cubans went back and like this was a, a definite, there was a certain migration in the 70s. So that the 60s and 70s. So I did a little research here on this. And there was a migration of, I think, specifically from Trinidad. Uh, that's what they identify in this film. Um, a lot of these folks were from Trinidad. So, um, you know, I think that's maybe why they went back to Britain because there was this connection. Um, so I thought, I mean, that was just a little bit ironic that the British police, I guess in particular, were like, you know, who do you think you are, you know, being particularly racially discriminatory when the British colonized the West Indies, many of the, the islands in the West Indies just think that was ridiculous. One of the things that I happen to notice about the filmmaking about Steve McQueen's choices in the cinematography and I, but when they were in the mangrove, he used a lot of, well, first of all, with the characters, both in mangrove and in um, Lover's Rock, he used the colors, red, green and yellow everywhere. You guys probably noticed this, right? He used the colors everywhere. People were wearing them, they were on hats. I mean, it was really, really rich in like the Rastafarian, I mean, it was everywhere. So out front, it's like bright green, purple, and it had these great kind of Caribbean colors. But when they were in the restaurant, you know, I noticed it in the kitchen, the cinematography, and thank you, John, you found it for me, Shabir Kirchner, like it was very green. And in the restaurant itself, red. When you were with Mangrove 9, I guess, if you will, mm -hmm. the colors were very warm. When they were rioting, that was very kind of orangey. When they were on trial, 
and you went to the courthouse and it was that really important, you know, where people were tried for murder. It was blue. It was very cool, especially when they went down in, in the basement, when they were heading down and, and talking with their lawyers and when they were throwing Frank into the, into the tiny room and he was freaking out, it was all very cool. It was the color of the police. That really hit me. I, I, I just thought that was so cool, those choices. Um, Look at you noticing the colors I, and such. You know, That's awesome. I, <laughs> so, Production I, so designer I, would be very happy to. <laughs> yes. Some of the things that stand out to me, the things that I notice sometimes, but that just really got me. It, you know, it's odd the things I notice, but that was one of the things that stood out to me. Delisa, what were, what were your overall impressions of Mangrove? Well, I've never heard of it. You know, I, I didn't know the story. So, um, watching it it was almost like kind of hard to watch at the first thing at the first beginning it was really hard to watch <laughs> and um but i love how they broke down every character they made sure you knew each character what each character was about i mean even though he had a past you know um it's still he was trying to do the right thing he was still trying to do the right thing so, but I mean, it showed the characters, you know, just develop. I mean, especially when the, you know, even when the attorney was trying to get Frank to, you know, just, just plead guilty, just plead guilty. And she took off her shoe and started like chasing him and like, you know, like I'm going <laughs> to smack him with my shoe. <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, she's pretty fiery. <laughs> So it got, you got to see each character, like, you know, so it was really interesting, you know, especially when they were in the courtroom, I'm like, oh my gosh, they, they just really showed the police corruption. It really didn't help them at all. It's so sad because we consider racism an American problem and it's a world problem. It really is a world problem. I mean, all these people wanted to do was just live. They just wanted to be left alone. And I mean, they weren't committing any crimes or anything. And to see the ending where, I mean, I don't know if I could have took that for 18 years, 18 years. Seriously. He just, I mean, he kept opening and they kept doing this. He kept doing that. But I don't know if I could have took it for 18 years. I just don't know. I could have. So, I mean, kudos to him and everything else. And thanks to Steve McQueen for bringing the story to the forefront. Because, I mean, it was an important story because these people did go through this. You know, this was, this is a part of their history. And I'm really surprised that people in their family aren't bringing these stories to the forefront, you know, because they've had to tell these stories over and over again. I mean, I, I really, really love the story, but it was, it was a lot at first, but I, I, I just felt really bad that these, that they just really never, in a way, you know, you wanted almost a happy ending, like maybe they they changed something or the police force changed. You wanted something, but it wasn't that. It was just their story. This is the history of this place. That's what I got from it. I think there's, he does, uh, McQueen is so good because it's like there's devils in the details and stuff like that, where he is throwing in little nuggets here and there where it's just like, he's showing the Anglo-Saxon bias in general. And it's not just against uh, this community, which is obviously spotlighting, but there's like comments thrown in, derogatory comments about the Irish, which we all know that obviously there was a, a tumultuous relationship with that. And then uh, during the trial scene, there's the, uh, with the, uh, the one doctor who's the Indian doctor and as he's being cross-examined you can see that he has been put under pressure to give this sort of bogus testimony under the court of law the excellent. rules just apply to some right right yeah and it, it, it's just an excellent it, it's an excellent point altogether where it's just like these these are stories that that need to be that need a bigger audience so we understand that it's just like because i think sometimes that like there is um we're sort of presented history in just this one light and it's like and we try to and people just try to make you digest it just this way but it's like it's so multifaceted and it runs so much deep the problem runs so much deeper 
than uh, than what we as a society, not just our society, and but international society, have really uh, come to terms with yet. Delisa, to your your point about yeah the happy ending. I mean, personally, I think I mean in general, I'm I'm drawn to a lot of films like this because I. I'm like maybe the eternal optimist. <laughs> and so I always kind of like, I don't know, I'm drawn to whatever little nuggets of positivity Steve McQueen might give me. Not um, a lot, not a lot. <laughs> but but I think the, the thing about this film is like the story of the collective and how it's a reminder that um, the, the power that people have when they do band together. Because yeah, like you're saying, you're being beat down for years and years and years and years and man to be going through that struggle alone or to feel like you're alone or to feel like the whole system right is is against you um and this i don't know if delisa if you've seen um judas and the black messiah but to me it, it that's what it is right that's the yeah. title of the film yeah what what this reminds me of is like again it's another situation where the black panther party um and again, in a weird way, this kind of connects to Nomadland, like the whole idea of like um, uh, the mutual aid networks where like a collective, a group of people can find strength and solace and power in coming together outside of the system and like doing doing things on your own and being there for one another. Um, that's what I see is kind of the positive takeaway, despite everything else is like there is true people power and they did beat those bastards in 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 court right um so well i thought at the beginning of the film frank was trying to work within the system he was trying to he's like well if we follow the rules you know he he's like stay calm everyone we should work within the rules. Everyone else was trying to nudge like, hey, you know, no, we need to, to stand up. We need to work outside and push this. And there's that one important conversation that he has with, it's the character with the partner who he has, a, he has an argument with his spouse or his partner who um, she gets mad at him because he has Our grown up in Trinidad. <laughs> Darkest. You're talking about darkest. Yes, I'm talking about darkest. And he has an argument with his his partner because he's grown up in Trinidad and she's she gets mad at him because he's grown up in a in a culture where he's the majority race and she's grown up in a culture where she's the minority race. And so she says, well, you have this, you know, you know, you're you know, you you think that you're all hot shit. Meanwhile, you know, I've been looked down upon my entire life. Well, he's the one that talks to Frank and says, no, we're not working within their system. Let, let's fight it. You know, so actually Darkus has the right attitude. He, he has the feeling of like, no, let's work outside of this. We can be above this. We can, we should push against the system. And so he kind of gets Frank out of this mindset of, no, you know, push, push against this. So then they start this movement to get to get to the point of protest. And then once they finally do that, then they get to, okay, well, then they get in trouble, right? But I like, they finally get to trial and they represent themselves. Here's a question to everybody here. As Americans today, people representing themselves in court, let's just say, someone in a protest pick pick someone in the last year and a half two years anyone in a racial injustice case says i'm going to rep my represent myself in court what happens what's that like opinions everyone. tell it tell us erica tell us i don't know this is a question that was one of the things representing that, yourself that, is usually like you know a death sentence right like you're you're done <laughs> right it's it's well, sort of Ted Bundy represented himself that's not exactly a shining example I uh, know it's not a yeah. shining <laughs> example I know what you mean but I think about like who's the last person in America that I can think of that represented himself and for some reason Ted Bundy is the only person that came to mind until I watched this mangrove today so but I'm asking like 
these these individuals, the Mangrove Nine, said we are going to represent ourselves in court, and they did a great job. They were acquitted. Two two of them represented themselves in court. Two two of them did, and one of them made an exceptional argument and caught the policeman in in a corrupt moment. Now, like Delisa said, it didn't change the police at all, but it caught them in a moment of corruption and they were acquitted. The small victories, the small acts in the big tree. That's right. The small acts in the big tree. But I guess I'm just, you know, if someone who who is in their position now I, I don't think it would go well, seeing as we can't get indictments, no, just not to go down this road, but seeing as we can't get indictments on cases that are pretty straightforward, where there is, you know, let's call them misfractions by the police of a violent nature. And, we, you know, you have all and you have people lawyered up in that respect, and they can't get the indictments on the police. It shows you how deep and systemic the problem is. So I think to your, answer your question, Erica, that if somebody tried to represent themselves here in America right now, they would run up against um, very strong resistance. Yeah, and it's hard to get convictions because even they, they spoke on a lot of um, legal things in the movie where, you know, you have the right to have a jury of your own peers and they made the jury, a whole yeah. thing. Yeah. So with police officers, they have a right to have a jury of their own peers also. So now you have a jury who looks like them, who, I mean, like I grew up, I wasn't, I didn't grow up afraid of police officers. I mean, I grew up in Youngstown. We grew up in a neighborhood. I was raised up by my grandparents. We were taught to respect authority. And I mean, the police were a, a very strong, you know, face in our community. I mean, you know, Halloween time, they come and, you know, pass off candy to the kids, you know, this, things like that. So when things come up like this, it's hard for people to, especially a jury of their peers, to see them as anything but protectors. Because if you see them any other way, then you're afraid for your children, you're afraid for your life, you know, it, it changes your trajectory about your life. You know, when you're tried by a jury of your peers, of course, they're going to be acquitted because if you don't ever experience that, it's hard for you to wrap your mind around that a police officer would do something that's not, you know, right. in the scope of their job. The least, but that speaks to some level about the problem of the institution. And it's it's not refreshing, but it's interesting to see that England has the same issue where the institution of police, and I don't remember exactly when it happened. I think it was late 70s, early 80s, but there was there has been a, that shift in the in that time where uh, community policing, the police used to have to live in the uh, communities and the neighborhoods and in the cities, but particularly the neighborhoods that they patrolled. So there was this idea behind community policing. Uh, so they would have to know, you know, what was happening, you know, at this shop around that corner and that alley and stuff like that. And they knew the faces and they knew who, you know, they knew the people who, where they were walking the beat. And I, when that changed and when, like, when they were allowed to sort of separate themselves, there is no getting around the fact that that clearly now internationally has caused a lot of issues. <laughs> to say the least. it causes a lot of issues because I mean especially where you know I grew up in Youngstown and Camel you get cops from other areas and they you know they already kind of know the area as they say so they pin the area as you know something else and they come in and they're going to fix it because they know what's best for it and they don't know the area. They don't know that family. They don't know like, okay, well, this is who's this or who's that. They just assume every, they group everybody in this category and they treat everybody as, as that. And then it just makes it bad. And then people are distrustful. Then it just becomes a even bigger issue because there is corruption. And this really showed how big the corruption it really is, but it, Took, takes him 18 years and fighting constantly just to, I mean, I mean, and not convicted in anything, but it's just right. like almost a waste of time. It's like, oh my gosh, how many times are we going to come to this court? 
it puts the issue in the forefront, but it also is like, who's going to step up? I mean, in 18 years, nobody has stepped up in this, you know, in this police force and said, enough is enough. This is done. This is it, you know? Well, I mean, watch, uh, watch the third episode of uh, Small Axe for a story similar to what you're hinting at, Delisa. What happens if somebody steps up? on the inside it also does not go well oh boy oh jeez. i didn't watch well, that one i watched it <laughs> okay there you go <laughs> what about lovers rock oh wow okay did mike did you have a last comment about uh yeah. mangrove before we move on I, all i was gonna say and again it's sort of not to go down too far the political route and everything like that but it's like it is sort of galling the fact that it's just like you have an institution with and i think everybody recognizes the service that they do for the community and the difficulties of the job but until they start asking honest and true and having a dialogue amongst themselves about what the um you know about the toxicity of what it is you know to just be supportive of the brothers in blue and not think about the greater cause i, I don't again i don't see it changing unfortunately so that's mangrove the second film as erica said is lovers rock which um i think everybody i think we probably all will agree that everyone we would recommend watch all five films in the anthology but i thought that um lovers rock would be a nice follow-up obviously steve mcqueen thought so too because that's the order that he presents them in um so lover's rock is inspired from stories from his his childhood he said that his aunt uh which is very familiar in the story she would sneak out of the house late at night and come back early in the morning and get a knock on the door the next day to get get ready ready for church and that was kind of the routine and she brought him to one of these parties once when he was a child and that had a had a strong lasting effect on him he said that um she i guess she must have had to babysit him or something i can't remember the full story but basically they put him in the coat room and he was up in the coat room all night and snuck down at some point in the night and saw the uh, the wild good time i mean i I really love the vibe of of this movie for sure. But so basically, Lovers Rock is a house party movie, and it kind of leaves the. I mean, there are politics for sure that bleed in to the story, and it's definitely there on the fringes, which is cool. The way that he set this up, you know, he introduces you to the world and the time period and all of that that's going on in the first film. So you kind of have that threat, you know, like literally right down the road or around the corner kind of waiting if you go down the wrong go down the wrong road from the party you may you may encounter some of these issues but uh so there's this big euro hit song called silly games by janet k in 1979 which is uh, featured prominently in lovers rock but that song in particular um you know was kind of ingrained in in his mind and um Lover's Rock is a genre of reggae music and it's very, uh, it was very popular in, in London at this time period. This film takes place, I think, in the, seven, in the late 70s. Um, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. It has to be just because of Kung Fu fighting. Kung Fu fighter, yeah. <laughs> sort of, that is a bit of a, the song, the music is the tell, yeah. It's an experience film. It's a house party film. Um, the interesting things for me that that it covers is, um, you know, kind of how men behave and women behave. You know, the guys are trying to get laid. And I mean, some of the women are trying to get laid, but kind of like the solidarity between women um, is interesting. Also kind of, you know, the, there's there's some moments of, of a threat of like sexual assault and things that are also in the film. Um, I thought it was just a lot of fun. It's an hour. It's it's really fast and it's an experience one one night at a house party. What, what did you all think about Lovers Rock? I call it a vibe film and I associated it to like dazed and confused. I mean, something that Linklater would do. And uh, I, I think this was, this must've been a lot of fun for McQueen to, uh, because there's a lot of, I feel like in, even in the camera movie and the way that's directed, there's a lot of enjoyment 
that he's having sort of uh, reminiscing about that even from like the very beginning when they're uh, cooking the food for the party uh, beforehand like it's a really enjoyable sort of it's not a biopic uh, but just it's memory that he has it's I loved it it's great at the end when it has you know the 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 Mercury Records dance scene is it that's got a lot of energy to it Erica Delisa I think it, what sums it up is that he puts a lot of little things and, you know, like he'll drop some little nuggets in there, like you say, um, because even the first beginning and even at the end with the with the guy with the with the cross mm-hmm. and that sums up the whole movie. We all have our own crosses to bear. That's what the whole movie is, basically. So it's like, you know, it's each there he is once again introducing us to characters and getting letting us get to know characters but it introduces us to almost with the rastafarians with with reggae it's a religion to them you know so it's it is 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 pulling us into you almost a spiritual moment you know i mean especially towards the end with the guys you know because with reggae it was more that was more of a male oriented genre anyway and it was more of that big feel and lovers rock was more for the women you know the women waited for you know a guy to choose them and that's what they were waiting waiting for a guy to choose them you know like how can i not be chosen this is the song right now you know so it was introducing us to a moment you know these little moments you know so we got these tight romantic if you will moments and then we get this big spiritual moment. I mean, they were having, you know, this big come to Jesus moment at the towards the end. I, I liked it because, you know, it was it was a story. You got to see the story, especially with the girl and her cousin. You know, you got to see this intense moment because, you know, he's hurting, he's in pain. He comes to release himself in the music. Things got revealed with the music and things got healed with the music. So, I mean, I think that's what, you know, I really got from this movie. And it was, it was a feel-good movie. Some good insights. I, you hit on a couple things I was thinking about. Um, some little things that I noticed. I, I, I thought of one small detail that reminded me of my mother. Bammy, who was a total creep, who assaulted the girl in the backyard, and our hero, Martha, when Martha is in line for the bathroom and Bammy comes up and he's like, oh, you get your fabric and I'm a tailor and I know. And he said, you made that yourself. And it made me think that, um, yeah, you know, women made a lot of their clothing. That used to be a thing that women used to make a lot of their own clothing, especially their dresses, because dresses were a little easier than making pants. And and when I was younger, you know, like I found, you know, my mom had like a bag of like clothing patterns and some, and some fabric. So I was like, oh yeah, that's right. Women used to make clothing. And <laughs> just that whole exchange just kind of reminded me of that, that sometimes to get what you wanted, you just made your own clothing. And uh, simple inline dresses too. So yeah, <laughs> right. Just very simple. You don't need anything too flat. You buy like some nice fabric, you make something nice and you have a, every, you know, every woman had a sewing machine. And you get exactly what you want and you don't spend a lot of money. And so I thought that was that was just a little detail that uh, I thought was very sweet and also very practical, you know. I, I guess someone like me, who's kind of a clothes horse and Mike likes to make fun of me for that. Um, I, I think I going to the wayside too and like to comment on what Delisa was saying, like the whole ritual of the night, like when I was growing up, like, I I don't remember like, you know, house parties having like this kind of like a cultural vibe where you would like partner up with somebody and like, you know, that whole ritual of like the dance and people inter like they're really like intertwining with each other. And there's like this whole thing to the, you know, I, I thought it was just beautiful and like, um, kind of poetic, you know, and something that I guess I feel like I haven't really experienced it at, 
in American life, I don't feel like, or or white American life, um, you know, that, that sense of, you know, community and the ritual and the culture kind of. Well, John, I also think it speaks to a bit of a a period of time, to be honest. I I don't, I don't think it's um, because there definitely was some of that, like back in like sort of the old Italian stuff and the old uh, Jewish stuff. And like, that is just something with technology that we have, that we've sort of lost. Right. It's different because John, remember girls used to have their dance cards and you would go with your dance card and fill it up. I mean, that's- I am not that old. I don't know what you're talking about. You you're don't like, know John, what that remember, means. I, d- I never had a dance card that I was punched. No, did, I'm, you punch? I'm did you being... get punches for the dance card? No, I'm being silly, but <laughs> but there's all kinds of different cultural, you know, that's very formal and very kind of silly, but a lot of cultures have whatever that is um, that they do. I mean, watching Lovers Rock, it felt very relaxed and I wanted to go to that party. It felt really good. Oh yeah, I felt jealous. Every (laughs) I know I was jealous, but of course everyone was smoking marijuana all night long and very relaxed and like they were going, yes, like you said, they were going and wanting to look good and hook up and dance and touch each other. And yeah, I mean, it looked great. It was fueled by music. And like Delisa said, it had a spiritual element to it and it had drugs involved. Um, But then, you know, back in, you know, the fifties or the forties and fifties, you know, you would go to a dance and the purpose was the same, uh, except it was, you know, you weren't grinding on each other. You were, and you were drinking non-alcoholic, you know, punch but the girls had a dance card and you would show up and the boys would write their name on a dance card. You know, the girl would say, yes, you may write your name on my dance card. And next up is John Lyons. And then after that is Mike Berlin. And then after that is John Q Public. And you would dance with whoever's on your dance card next. I mean. The point I'm making is that every culture has its ritual and whatever it is that they do. But I think what Mike just brought up is, you know, that it's changed that maybe young people today in America, the culture is somewhat different. And maybe that's because of technology. There's a lot more like, I'm back in my corner and I'm on my phone. I'm not like fully present with you. I'm not trying to just connect with you. I'm like, hey, do you want to take a selfie with me? I've, we've kind of watched our nieces engage with their, I mean, I've seen, we've seen videos of our nieces like hanging out with boys and girls and they just kind of sit there. Now they're teens. They're not like people in their twenties or thirties, like the age of people in this video so it's hard it's hard to say yeah it's hard. I, don't, I, don't I don't know young adults i don't feel like when i was a young adult that you know that they were the ritual was there for dance and and partnering and i i feel like my my uh upbringing was different and i'm jealous Two, two things real quick. Uh, well, I don't think it's just, and I shouldn't, it's not just technology on some level. There's also something I think a little bit like, uh, there's a bit of a, uh, a, a sad underbelly to the story as well, because it's like, at the end of the day, if you really think about the probably the whole, what, what he's examining in small acts, it's also, here is in Lover's Rock, probably a respite. And he's showing you a moment of like, a, 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 in the eye of the storm, just this, you know, this half, like this more positive, um, energetic story that it doesn't necessarily, now the hurricane's still happening all around it. And there's little points where it touches in, but, uh, but I think the point I was going to go to is that at the end of the day is that we were so much technology for all its faults has also connected us in different ways as well. But like, so there was probably a draw to other people of, your community who understood where you came from. So Maybe I think we're I, thinking about this the wrong way. I think that we're equating 
house party with like other parties with people like friends and people we went to school with or college with or like people that we are friends with when we're like in our 20s. I think we need to equate this maybe more with people that we know or are acquaintance with, acquaintances with on the fringes, like going out to a bar or a club that we're like dancing with where there's music and we're drinking and maybe like, you know, smoking with. Yeah, like they were creating their own clubs, basically. Yeah, they're creating their own club space versus like going to someone's house party. You know what I mean? Maybe yeah, because I know like back in the day, that's what the house parties were. We weren't allowed to go to house parties. We were allowed to go to concerts. That ignited my whole thing about concerts. But we didn't want to go to concerts. We wanted to go to house parties. So... <laughs> So we would tell my mother because we knew that a lot of the people were go to the skating rinks. And the skating rinks were like house parties on skates, you know? <laughs> but my mother is just assumed that since they were skating rinks, they weren't like house parties. But we used to go with my, me because I'm the oldest and my sister, who's a year younger than me, and a couple of our friends. And we made sure we all dressed alike. We made sure we dressed alike. We had to dress because you had to be seen. Um, so we dressed alike. And then, you know, we knew the boys that were going to be there. We knew the people that were going to be there. So you had to be noticed. So we had to wear the bright colors and, you know. And so, you know, you would go and the music then was made for you to dance close, you know. So there was music and stuff. So you made sure you were out there in the middle of the dance floor because you didn't go to the skating rink to skate. <laughs> so, so, you know, my mother's like, did you have a good time? You skate? Oh yeah, we had a great time. Yeah, you know, we were skating. No, the music would come on. You got in the middle of the floor where everybody was skating around to dance because you knew the boys were coming to the middle of the floor when certain songs were coming on. But I mean, I like so it. you were, <laughs> it's up, you know, so it was made to do that, you know. I think we so when you so when I even when I watched this, it just brought back memories because it was just like, oh yeah, I remember some of some of these songs I remember, some of them I, I didn't know. But it was just like, oh yeah, these this music was made for you to kind of like dance like that. Like <laughs> really dance. Really, yeah, really, really dance. Really dance. <laughs> Going back to something you said earlier, Delisa, you brought up an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about it, but sort of how the uh, Rastafarian lifestyle was like, like a religion. And, uh, and we get the reveal at the end uh, as she's sneaking back into her bedroom and the crosses up the, the, but like the, when she's taking the bus out to the party, what is your interpretation? You, do you think that is a look of, uh, of guilt when she's on the bus and she sees the cross? I think so because only because she of their upbringing and the guy carrying the cross, like I said, we all got our crosses to bear. And that's what everybody in the show, they had their own crosses to bear. I think she kind of, you know, took her back there like, oh my gosh, I got to hurry up and get back home because I know I'm going to have to go to church tomorrow. You know, so it kind of like brought her back to some kind of reality. But yet still, that was the house party to be at. Like, anybody who was anybody had to be at that house party so she knew she had to be there but i mean and to go with their friend patty who was like patty patty, patty deuces <laughs> patty's gone <laughs> patty left but i mean it was just like you know i mean they were both there for different reasons patty just wanted to hang out and be girlfriends and marty was like no i gotta do now like <laughs> sorry patty so she got stuck with the terrible guy. She got stuck with the terrible friend. Reggie, Reggie, <laughs> Reggie. She got the Reggie. She got stuck with Reggie. But so that's what it was. It was just like they were there for each with a different reason. But I was like, yeah, Martha has a boyfriend now. Like <laughs> she's like, that is going to be her boyfriend. <laughs> I mean, they were practically like already having sex on the dance floor. They're like hooked up now. They're like a couple now. <laughs> That was that that scene, that shot. It's just like he 
and he holds it too it's just like it's like that is without you know it's interesting because it's like normally in american cinema it's just like they'd have to have like the soft focus and they'd be taking it's just like that is about as sexually charged i think a scene as i've seen in a long time i was like ooh, this is and that's what the music was meant for. The music yeah. meant to be that, you know. And then you got the marijuana going on. You got the alcohol going on. It's like somebody's going to be pregnant at this party. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Well, so I guess to, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I guess to wrap up our discussion, so does everybody recommend Mangrove oh. and Lover's Rock and Small Axe? F- filmmaking at the at, at a at a supreme, well accomplished level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. It looks it looks gorgeous. It's fun to watch. It makes you feel. Um, kind of like what I said at the beginning with Mangrove, that we feel like we're in our little American boxes, our little modern American boxes. And then you realize that like, we have a timeless global, you know, issue. And it makes you feel like um, there's so much more to learn and to, to think about every single day. And then when you watch Lovers Rock, you're like, man, I want to go to that party. I want to go to that party. I want to have that party. I want to go to that party. Um, a house party. Yes. Yeah, it's time for a house party. Those oh. people you... deserve that release, right? That's right. That's right. They deserve that relief. Um, yeah, Delisa, if you have that house party, we're all coming. We're coming. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, I highly recommend Small Axe. I can't wait to watch the next three. So, Yeah, good stuff. Yep. Thank you, everybody, so much. Uh, our next film in, in two weeks, which is going to be on Wednesday, March 31st, will be our next um, talk back, our Film Grain Virtual Cinema talk back. It's going to be The Story of Plastic. So as you listen to this, any time between now and the 31st, just go to our website, filmsocietynwpa.org. Scroll down towards the bottom. You're going to see a yellow button that says donate. Donate any amount to the Film Society as a thanks for us putting on these this series. And we'll email you um, the private link to view the film as well as the link um, over Zoom uh, to join us on the 31st. This event is sponsored by the Whole Foods Co-op. The story of plastic was filmed uh, across three continents and features interviews with experts and activists um, on the front lines. It presents a cohesive timeline on how we got to our current global plastic pollution crisis and how the oil and gas industry has successfully manipulated the narrative around it. Um, We are going to have one of the film's producers, Stiv J. Wilson, um, on the panel. We're also working on some other panelists. We feel this is a very important um, film for everyone in the discussion. I'm sure, as Eric and Mike will agree. It will make you think differently about your shopping. About a great many things, recycling, all, all kinds of things. It's very eye-opening, and uh, I, th- I think the discussion will be quite interesting. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Please join us for the, the story of plastic. Like John said, it will change the way you think about recycling, about plastic. Um, it's going to be a great conversation. I want to say thank you to Lisa. Yeah, to Lisa. Lisa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love your insight. I love your insight. Please For join sure. us again. Well, thank you guys. I mean, yeah. when I came upon this, I was like, because I mean, it's just like, okay, well, you know, quarantine stuff. It's like, you know, you, I'm at home. What am I going to do? So I came across your site and I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll join and see what they're, what they're talking about. I'm like, oh, okay. This is pretty cool. Oh, <laughs> All right. We are pretty cool too. Thanks. Thanks for being with us.